part of John's Gospel originally. Now, how many of you, when you heard me say that, did not know what I was talking about? Okay? All right? A couple? Good? Good? So, we're going to answer that question. So, John 7, 53, through John 8, 11, is a wonderful story about Jesus and this woman caught in adultery. Um, very well-known story. Beautiful message about the grace of Christ. The only problem is that it is very likely not an original part of John's gospel, or any other gospel for that matter. So look at your Bibles. Most Bibles today put brackets around this section. Whose Bible does not have brackets around this section? Anybody? Okay? Couple, right? What do y'all what do y'all have? New King James? Yeah. Okay. I looked at my King James at home, and even it has brackets, so I guess it depends on the publishers yeah. who, who put them out. Most versions, most Bibles, will put brackets around it and say something to the effect of the earliest manuscripts do not conclude 753 through 811. So, while the Bible does not have, uh, I mean, while the Gospel of John does not originally include this section, nevertheless, um, it is most likely an original, uh, a true story. Um, it's probably passed down through oral tradition um, to us. So we're not going to consider these verses to have originally been a part of John's gospel, and so we're not going to consider them to have been inspired or even scripture. But that doesn't mean we can't learn from this story and cannot be greatly helped by this story. And so the method we're going to go through as we're going to look at it is the major points we're going to take and emphasize about Jesus will be emphasized by portions that are scripture, by other passages that are scripture from other gospels that say the same thing. But before we go there, I want to spend the first half of our time together this morning considering the issue of the reliability of the scriptures which are in our possessions. This is a great opportunity to sort of hit the pause button and tackle a very important topic. The last thing I want to happen this morning is that you will walk away thinking that the scriptures we possess, translated in your Bibles, is something that is uncertain. Uncertain that it is the very word of God. Or thinking that we can just sort of pick and choose which passages we will affirm to be scripture. That's not what we are doing this morning at all. So my first desire this morning is that you will walk away actually more certain that what is printed in your Bibles is the very word of God. Just as inspired and just as certain as it was off of the pen of John or Paul or Peter. That's my first desire. My second desire is that you would learn a little bit about a process called textual criticism. Now, I don't want this to be a sleep session, and I don't want this to be overly technical, but I think it would be very helpful um, to go over some of the basics of this process. Textual criticism is a process which determines the correct or the best reading, the closest to the original reading um, that is found in the manuscripts. I obviously do not anticipate anybody in this room doing textual criticism. 
Um, it's a very tedious, uh, laborious process. I do it on a very minor scale when I prepare to teach every week if there's a variant in the text. Um, my desire, though, is that as you know this process, you would grow in your confidence in the reliability, in the accuracy, and therefore the authority of the Bibles which you possess. So that's what we're going to do uh, this morning to, to begin. So what do we do with John 8? We're first going to consider the scriptures in general, the scriptures in general, and then we're going to focus in on this text in particular and use it as a case study. Let me also say here, please feel free to interrupt me um, if you have a question or a comment or if something does not make sense. I want to begin by reading to you a statement by the uh, Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. This was drafted in 1978 in response to the growing liberalism, which had begun um, at the beginning of the 20th century to greatly influence the church and was wreaking havoc on the church's confidence in the scriptures. And so about 200 men gathered together for uh, the drafting of what is known as the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And this is what they say in Article 10. It's especially pertinent for us this morning says, we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic, that means to the original documents which John penned, autographic text of scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of scriptures, your Bibles, which you have, are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. So look at that last line, to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We do not have any of the original manuscripts in our possession. If we did, we'd probably be tempted to worship them, or they would be uh, a relic or something. We don't have any of those, but what we do have is an astounding number of copies, manuscripts, such that the originals can be determined, as they say, with very great accuracy. God inspired the original documents, and so it should be our concern to know those to the best of our ability, and that is very doable. And I want to demonstrate that for you this morning. So first, let me give you a quick survey of witnesses to the New Testament text. When I mean witnesses, I mean ancient texts which record and or preserve the text of Scripture for us. And there are three basic witnesses. There are ancient Greek manuscripts, there are ancient translations, and there are the church fathers. So first, Greek manuscripts. There are about 5,000 plus ancient Greek manuscripts. That is an astounding number, and I'm going to show that to you uh, by comparing in a minute um, other documents that we have. 5,000 plus Greek manuscripts, either portions of the New Testament or entire books or sometimes even the entire New Testament. And not to get too technical, but these manuscripts in, uh, come in three types. The first type is 
papyri. So you're probably familiar with the papyrus plant. Very early, um, they are formed into papers. The background is actually a stack of papyri. It's called Papyrus 66. A very important one for the Gospel of John. You're talking early 200s AD. Um, 100 years after John wrote his gospel. Very early. Um, and uh, so that's very important papyrus. Most of the Gospel of John recorded there. There's also papyri 70, 75, another one for John. Um, hundreds of these. After that, we get what are called uncials. So they come a bit later, made not out of papyri, but out of vellum, a kind of material. Um, 8400 to 8800. Um, what's unique about these is the script is all capital Greek letters. Um, there's no spaces, it's just solid line uh, capital Greek letters. It's just a unique form, style um, came in that period. Next, after uncials, uh, here are two very important ones. I'll mention those later. Um, they're both Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, 300s. Um, Sinaiticus is the entire New Testament preserved for us um, in, uh, in Greek. Very, very important document there. After this, we have minuscules. They come around 800 to 1300, and they're in small case script, lowercase script. Um, and uh, there's many of them. And added together, we have 5,000 plus um, of these Greek manuscripts. Now, I want to give you a flavor for how incredible this is. Let me give you some statistics about other ancient manuscripts which have passed down to us today. The works of Suetonius, who knows who he is? Who has read the 12 Caesars? Ancient Greek, uh, ancient Roman historian. Um, he, he's the one we get most of our information about the Caesars from. He wrote it in AD 75 to 160. The earliest copy that exists is from the late 8th to early 9th century. That's about 700 years after composition. And the earliest um, one of these manuscripts has a number of defects in it. And beyond that, there's only a handful of these other ones that exist before the 14th century. So there's not many and very far displaced from from the original. Another, the, the Annals of Tacitus, a recorded Roman history, uh, the history of the Roman Empire, lived AD 56 to 117. These have survived in two major manuscripts, one copied around AD 1000 and the other in AD 1100, about a thousand years after the original. Finally, Julius Caesar, his works written in 144 BC, 10 surviving ancient manuscripts, the earliest surviving in AD 900, about a thousand years after the original. Now compare all of that to the New Testament. Not only do we possess over 5,000 copies or fragments or portions of the New Testament, but of these, a number are from 100 to 300 years after the New Testament is written. A good example is what I pointed out to you, uh, the Uncial Codex Sinaiticus, um, dates 4th century, 300s. Um, New Testament is excellently preserved. I mean, I, I was going to show you a, a picture, but we don't have time. If you want to see it, I mean, it's just incredible, the, the amount of preservation. Uh, very clear, uh, very good quality. Well, in addition to all of these, there are also the translations of the New Testament to ancient languages. So you have Old Latin, Coptic, Syrian, Armenian, um, Georgian, Ethiopian, a number of those. Um, 
These translations were copied in the 4th to 5th centuries, so 3 to 400s, but they preserve a text which dates from the 2nd to 3rd centuries. Very, very helpful to look at other translations. And if that were not enough, we have the church fathers, the patristic fathers, the Greek church fathers, which contain so many quotations in the New Testament. This is what Bruce Metzger, a um, text critic, says. If all other sources for our knowledge of the New Testament text were destroyed, they, that is the patristic quotations, would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. Astounding. So the Lord has preserved his word in astounding ways. We don't have any of the original copies, but we do possess such a magnitude of manuscripts, many from an early date, that we can rest with certainty on the accuracy of the scriptures in our possession. That leads to another important point that I want to uh, highlight now. The more manuscripts that you have, the more errors and discrepancies will exist between the manuscripts, right? Some differences arise from scribal errors. Remember, there is no printing press until Gutenberg, 1450. Misspellings, accidental skippings of a word or a phrase. Other differences come because the scribe wanted to harmonize the text, maybe Mark with Matthew. Sometimes they want to clarify a difficulty in the text, and they have a little bit to, to clarify. And so the more of these copies you have, the more of the differences between them you will have as well. You might think, well, there you go, Michael, so much for all these manuscripts. Well, actually, no. That's a disadvantage, but it's also a massive advantage. Let's say all you had was two copies of the Gospel of John. Any difference, you would have a 50-50 chance at determining the original reading, right? That's not what we have. We have thousands upon thousands of witnesses to these texts. And for any disagreement between them, we can very easily and carefully, in most instances, by comparing all of the evidences, weighing all of the evidence, come to what is most likely the original reading. Well, that leads to the next point. I just want to sketch now this basic process is called textual criticism. What do we mean by textual criticism? What are some of those criteria? I said by weighing all of the evidence. Well, first, there is external evidence that must be weighed. First of those is the date of the witness. So obviously, the earlier the witness, um, it often, not always, but often carries more weight. So Papyri 66, that was a massive find um, the, in the 20th century um, that really supported the Gospel of John studies. Beyond that, families of witnesses or text types. So what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. Let's say I make two copies of my teaching notes this morning and pass it out to two people in this class, person A and person B, okay? And then, let's say person A and person B go out and make 10 copies of those notes and pass it on to other people. But the copier that person B used had this big smudge on it that he didn't clean off. And that smudge got copied onto every 10 
of those copies that he made and passed off to others who would then reproduce those um, same copies. Then over time, accidental pen marks started showing up on some of these copies in the, of person B. More than that, some spilled coffee stains appeared on some of the others. And after many copies have been made, if you could then collect all those copies together, it would be possible to put them into groupings. There are many which do have some pin marks on them. Others have these coffee stains, and they, they probably came from this area in Timberlake of the Expositor Seminary, where students are careful. <laughs> but what unifies them all is this smudge on the top right corner. They might have discrepancies within this group, but there is one characteristic that unifies them all, and you could put them into family B. They all descended from this ancestor B in all these, all these ways, and they're unified by these similar characteristics. But you've discovered other copies that are quite clean. They do not have this smudge on them. They have some other differences among them, but they don't have this smudge, so they're clearly a different family descended from what we will call person A. And it's very similar with text types in the New Testament. Some texts are from a family which are really quite loose in making free additions or clarifications to the text. It's called the Byzantine text family. In fact, the majority of manuscripts that we possess, you've probably heard of the majority text, they descend from this family, the Byzantine family. But when you understand this principle, you realize that just because it's the majority of manuscripts doesn't make it the most accurate, right? You can make a thousand copies of person B, right? But just because you have more of those doesn't make it any more credible, right? It still has the smudge on it. But there are other families in the Greek text which do not contain such additions or changes, which date back to a very early period from a very conservative scribal school called the Alexandrian School. And it preserves a very accurate text for us. And so in this process of textual criticism, it's not important only to look at the date, but the text type. Some of those uh, examples I gave you, uh, like uh, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, those codexes that exist, they're all Alexandrian. They're, they're a very um, clean and, and careful scribal copy. Beyond that, we have then geographical distribution. How widely did it spread? Was it just in localized in one area, or is it pretty predominant over a certain region? And if that were not enough, beyond the external evidence, there's internal evidence that must be weighed. Things like considering the vocabulary of the author. Does this author use this word anywhere else? Syntax, context of the passage, all these things can help to identify which reading is best or most likely original. And after that, if you still feel a bit shaky, Michael, I'm not sure about all this textual criticism stuff, let me give you a few summary points. Number one, there exists no discrepancy of all these textual variants we've talked about, which affects a single point of doctrine. Number two, the large majority of the text in the New Testament is the same. If I were to pull up Papyrus 66 and just start reading it to you, it's my Gospel of John. Like it's 
<laughs> if I pull up one of those Byzantine, those more liberal text types that added a lot, you're going to say, that sounds a whole lot like what I have in my Bible. The variants usually concern individual words, spellings, phrases, harmonizations. The best reading is often very obvious when weighing the evidence. And in those rare cases in which there is no strong consensus, the variant changes nothing of doctrinal significance at all. Listen to Wayne Grudem on this. He says, for over 99% of the words in the Bible, we know what the original manuscript said. Even for many of the verses where there are a textual variant, the correct decision is often quite clear. And there are really very few places where the textual variant is both difficult to evaluate and significant in determining the meaning. The Chicago Statement, Article 10, concludes this way. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs, the original copies. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. Brothers and sisters, we have the word of God. The Lord has pre preserved his scriptures in incredible ways. You can rest confident as you open your Bibles. So I hope that wasn't too technical. Um, I just want you to come away um, feeling the weight of the certainty of the scriptures. So we have a few minutes here. Before we go on to actually study our passage, um, I want to sort of zoom in and use our passage as a test case, okay? So this passage, John 8, in particular, I want to give you six reasons for not affirming this, this passage. Number one, it is lacking in the best Greek manuscripts. Again, not just those of early date, but the best text family, Papyri 66, Papyri 75, Sinaiticus, Canis, all these other uh, very, very early texts, Alexandrian school, do not contain it. And many, many others do not contain this. They move direct, directly, seamlessly from chapter 7, verse 52, or next verse, chapter 8, verse 12. No indication that there's ever anything in between them. It does not appear in John until the 5th century, 400s, what's called the Codex Beza. Um, it's a codex which is actually known for its additional details. The, the Book of Acts and this, this codex, think of a book, an ancient book. It's a tenth longer in Codex Beza. So they're very liberal in adding extra things just to um, embellish some of these stories. It's a codex known for adding things. That's the first time it shows up. And after this, it does not show up again in a Greek manuscript until the 12th century. It's a long time. Craig Keener said, One would hardly expect so many early manuscripts to omit such an important story about Jesus were it in their text. So that's very strong evidence right there. But if that were not enough, to quote Bruce Metzger, number two... No Greek church father prior to the 12th century comments on this passage. And the one that does in the 12th century, he declares that accurate copies of the gospel do not contain it. Pretty significant. Number three, it is missing in many of the early translations, Syriac, Coptic, Old Latin. 
Number four, this one's very interesting. Um, it's floated around in various places before finally settling here. So in some manuscripts, it's placed after John 7.36, some after John 7.44, some places at the end of the Gospel of John. Another one sticks it in Luke, after Luke 21.38. So in other words, no one's nowhere to stick this thing. It's just sort of floated around until finally it is settled here. It's interesting, uh, those that um, do include this in these later manuscripts, they put asterisks next to it to indicate that it's probably not original. Number five, it abruptly interrupts this passage. You remember that Jesus is at the Feast of Booths and he's just declared himself the fulfillment of this water pouring ritual. He provides living water. And then in chapter 8 verse 12, he declares that I'm the light of the world, which fulfills another ritual that was done at the Feast of Booths. This story totally interrupts the whole flow of what is going on in John. Number six, the style and vocabulary greatly differs from John's. Every single verse in this section, except verse five, has a word that John never uses anywhere else in his gospel. <laughs> if John wrote this, it is very, very strange. So that probably felt like I was beating a dead horse, but I just wanted to sort of illustrate for you how this process is done. And also help you see that there is very strong reason for saying what we're saying it's not originally part of John, nor any part of Scripture. should not treat it as inspired or as Scripture. But it's probably a piece of oral tradition, something that we can learn about and use other Scriptures to inform our understanding of. So before we go on to the story, any questions, comments about this? This is totally new, totally crazy. Yeah. What was the word that, that John never used before? All right, so... Uh, I can look at my, I have my, I can show you, I have my notes if you're interested. My, my Greek diagram, I have every one circled in orange. I mean, it's just every word. So for instance, uh, Mount Olives, he never talks about the Mount of Olives. The word, um, the word seized, um, she's caught in adultery. It's a very significant. John never uses the word adultery in his passage. Um, there's a number of them. Uh, to, to, to bring a charge against. It's a, it's a unique word in Greek as well. So all these words, you might think, yeah, it's pretty familiar. John never uses these other words, themes in his, in his gospel. And that obviously isn't the only piece of evidence, but when weighed with all the others, it, 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 it helps to offer conclusion. Mike, do you use yeah. uh, textual criticism for um, things like the, um, the resurrection morning in each of the gospels and how they differ uh, is there any textual criticism for that, or is that just saying that you know we had different eyewitnesses and so their stories are yep. just a little bit different as you study sure. what happened on the morning of the resurrection? Sure. Yeah, th th there is no major um, text critical issue in we have massive differences in manuscripts concerning that. I'd say there's not a contradiction between what is reported. Um, they're being reported in unique ways, different perspectives, um, but uh, not that I'm aware of. Now, Mark, so this is very rare, what we're talking about this morning, John 8. There's only a couple other places where big portions are uh, not originally there. End of Mark, those of you are aware, Mark 16, the section, uh, again, very similar issue. 
not uh, originally there. I don't think that was of the resurrection, though. That was uh, kind of a strange ending. Um, and then one in First John, I believe. Yeah. I guess the big question is, why is it included then in all these yeah. Bibles? That's a, that's a very good uh, question. I say tradition. It's traditionally been there since the 12th century. Um, it was included in the Latin Vulgate. It was included, um, you know, according to some church traditions. And it's a, again, like we said, it's probably a true story. Um, it's a very interesting story. It's a wonderful story. This wasn't in the original. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I would say tradition uh, is how it how it got here. Questions, comments? Yeah, one more. Okay. Wasn't there, isn't there controversy around the Lord's Prayer as well? Is it one, like, one of the last lines of the Lord's Prayer? So that would be an issue of har harmonization. Okay. So Luke records it and Matthew records it. Um, so it's not like it's something that's coming out of nowhere. I, I think one of the issues is Matthew pulls it from Luke and Luke pulls it from Matthew. But, but again, it's not like created out of nowhere. It would be an issue of harmonization. I, I can't remember the details on that. Again, you all have very good translations, your English Bibles. They deal with these issues. They weigh the pros and cons. They're often footnoted for you. Um, you don't have to wrestle through these things. Um, smart people have done it, and they've done a very good job. Um, so rest in your copy of God's Word. All right, questions, comments? There's a passage that, uh, that Mark was referring to um, in Mark 16, 9 through 20, is that where it also has in the... Uh, Yes. Yes. I don't know if Mark was referring that specifically, but yes, that, that, that that's one of the others that is like this. But the same principles. That same principles. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Questions, comments? If you have any other questions, if you want to see some of the uh, digital scans of these manuscripts, it's really pretty interesting. I'd love to, to show you. Um, if you want to get more information on how this works, you want some books. I got some really good snoozers I could give you, and uh, so I think they're kind of fun. Okay, let's move on to this story then, because uh, I want to get through this story. I've entitled it Three Magnificent Statements Which Display the Glory of Christ and the Story of the Adulterous Woman. It's interesting, Christ only makes three statements in this whole story. One is to the scribes and Pharisees, and two or to the woman at the very end of this passage. But they're packed with glory. I just want to look at those quickly with you. The first is the display of the glory of Christ's wisdom. So look at verse 53. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. But what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, to them, Let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the 
ground. This is very similar to the other gospel accounts in which the scribes and Pharisees try to set up a trap to accuse Jesus. They're trying to put Jesus in a pickle so that either way he goes, they got him. He's toast. Just as in the other gospels, Jesus just blows him away, uh, speechless with his wisdom. So what is the trap? Look at verses 3 through 4. They bring to him a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now this is important because the law required eyewitness testimony. And here they come claiming to have witnessed his sin. But does anything strike you as odd in these verses? Where's the man? Where's the man? You don't commit adultery alone, right? Where's the man? And if they had witnessed it, where'd the guy go? Right? Was he just faster than them? He'd get up and, and take off, maybe? Or perhaps they were not so concerned with the law that they were concerned with using this woman as a tool to get Jesus. Or perversion of the law. Look at, look at how they said. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Moses commanded you to stone the man. So already we can tell something's not right. This thing's already stinking with corruption from the get-go. Then verses 5 to 6, they set the trap. They, they bring up what Moses had commanded. You may be wondering if and where Moses ever commanded such a thing. Go to Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 to 24. Uh, you can read the specifics on it. So the scribes and Pharisees are not technically wrong. Moses did prescribe stoning specifically for betrothed couples infidelity in it, but most likely also applying to Mary. But what is the trap? Look at verse 5. The Greek is emphatic. It says, therefore you. What do you say? They're putting him in such a place such that if he agreed or disagreed with them, they got him. Right? If he disagreed, that would be the easiest. They could immediately, in front of everybody, accuse him as being against the law of Moses. But if he agreed with them, allowed her to be stoned, it would contradict his entire ministry, right? Which offered forgiveness and called such sinners to repentance. One thinks of Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And not only would Jesus have lost his reputation, it would probably have put him in jeopardy with Rome conquered peoples could not just perform executions for things that Roman law did not deem deathworthy. So this is a very similar trap to what they did in Mark 12, paying taxes with Caesar. Either way he goes, he's, uh, he's in trouble. But I'll look at how Jesus responds. Verse 6 through 7. He bends down, writes on the ground with his finger, stands up, speaks to them, and bends down again. And the question everyone asks at this point is, what did he write? Right? And there have been as many options proposed to answer that question than there have been people asking that question. Um, some common ones are that he is writing the sins of the scribes and Pharisees on the ground. Others say he's writing the Ten Commandments. Others say he's writing Jeremiah 17, 13. Very interesting verse. You can look it up later. In the end, we must conclude that we simply do not know what he wrote. But while we don't know what he wrote, the reason why he wrote is a bit more apparent. 
Notice after they ask him this question, then he stoops down. So he does it in response to their question, right? Um, and this frustrates them. Look at verse 7. It says, and they continue to ask him. It's just repeated over, over. He's not answering them. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Now, I don't think Jesus is trying to buy time because he can't figure out what to say. I think that because as soon as he says it, in verse 8, he stoops down again, right? To, to, to keep scribbling in the, in the dirt. So what is he doing? John Calvin suggested that his writing in the dirt was a sign of his disgust for them. I tend to agree. Um, it's as though he's ignoring them. He's not even playing their games. He bends down, scribbles. He recognizes their guile. He doesn't even engage with them. I also think it's significant that he uses his finger. This is one of those words that only appears here in John. But where else did the word finger appear in connection with the law of God? Who wrote the Ten Commandments? With the finger of God. Same word used there in the Greek Old Testament. I think Jesus may subtly be revealing to them that they are trying to trap him with the very law which he wrote and gave to Moses. Jesus is the lawgiver, and so he perfectly interprets the law it's exactly what he's getting ready to do for them. In other words, they've picked a really foolish fight. That brings us now to his words in verses seven, verse 7b. Look what he says to them now. The one from you who is without sin must cast the stone on her first. It's clearly a reference back to Deuteronomy 13.9 and 17.7, where it says that the eyewitness must be the first one to throw the stone, Right? That was meant to be a deterrent against, against false witnesses. If you make the accusation, you're the first that's got to cast this thing. It was also um, intended to heighten the weight. If you're lying about this, or if you're guilty of the same sins, you're just sealing your own condemnation, right? And I think that's a similar thing, what Jesus is saying here. And where he goes next is to expose their impure motives and applications of the law. So I do not think he's saying that you must possess absolute sinless perfection to carry out justice according to the Mosaic law. If that was his meaning, they could easily have said, Jesus, that, that's nowhere written. You're clearly uh, going beyond the law of Moses. I don't think that's what he's saying. Notice another thing. Jesus never disagrees with them. He never says she should not be stoned. You see that? He just gives the proper qualifications. So I think Jesus is saying something like this. The one who is without this particular sin of adultery must cast the first stone. Or else their stoning would be a declaration of their own condemnation. From what we know about the Pharisees, this is very probable in their hidden secret lives. Jesus could also be saying the one who is without sin, that's without sin which deserves equal punishment, like perverting justice and not giving a fair hearing. Let him cast the first stone. They may not be guilty of adultery, but he's warning them of the seriousness of hypocrisy, which judges others without mercy while neglecting serious judgment of self. Listen to Herman Ritterbos. I think he gets it really good here. 
But by designating as the first, the one who is without sin, Jesus faces them with the full and final seriousness of the law. Not so as to lay down conditions that would make all human administration of justice impossible, but in order to confront all who, ignoring their own sin, want to judge and condemn others without mercy. To confront such judges with what awaits them, the heavenly judge someday judge them by the same standard. James 2. 13, judgment is without mercy. So want to show no mercy. Romans 2, 1, you have no excuse, O man. Pass judgment, passing judgment, you condemn yourself. They were condemned hypocrites. Their zeal for judgment on others was not matched by an equal zeal for God's justice in their lives. The glory of Jesus' wisdom on display here is he rightly interprets the law and piercingly applies it to their hearts. He cuts through all hypocrisy. He exposes the bent of fallen man to be zealous for judgment on others and lenient for itself. Obviously, he doesn't mean we should never call sin, sin, or call people to adultery. That's how the world twists passages like that. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the danger there is of people being self-condemned who don't deal with sin in their lives in the same way. So let me ask you, are you a person primarily concerned with the sins of others? Does your zeal for talking about or exposing the sins in others match your zeal for exposing and dealing with sin in your own life? That's what he's talking about. Next, look at the display of the glory of Christ's compassion, verses 9 through 11. Pharisees understood what Jesus is talking about. They're convicted in the depths of their consciences. According to this interpretation of the law, none of them were qualified. They walk out one by one, shamed by Jesus. Notice this. I love this point. After they have all left, Jesus is left alone with her standing in the middle, in the place of execution. Jesus alone standing. In other words, my friends, Jesus is the only one qualified to stone. He is completely without sin, completely without hypocrisy, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And here we get a glimpse at the heart of Christ. He's qualified to bring judgment, and one day he will bring it in awesome, righteous fury on all the ungodly. But he's come first not to condemn. Go back to John 3. Very quickly, almost John 3, verse 17. John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes is not condemned. The astonishing thing, my friends, is not that God should judge. The astonishing thing is that he would send his Son to be judged for you before the final judgment comes. This is the heart of God. Listen to Ezekiel 33. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Jesus embodies the character of God. Judgment is not what God loves the most. It's repentance. It's mercy. It's what he loves. That's what Christ embodies. So my friends, you will love others rightly. 
not by minimizing their sin, not by not calling it out, but by pointing them to Jesus in their sin. You're not being like a Pharisee when you call sin, sin. You're being like a Pharisee when you leave a sinner in their sin and under their judgment, like is going on right here, without bringing them to the one who can save them. Number three. The display of the glory of Christ's life-transforming message. Look at verse 11. Jesus stood up, says, Woman, where are they? As no one condemn you. She said, No one, Lord. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin. No more. This woman shows no sign of repentance or faith. We don't know her, her heart here. Jesus does with her just as he did with the man in John 5, 14. Remember, he heals him freely. And he gives them the proper interpretation of that grace. He says the same phrase, go, and from now on, sin no more. He commands her to abandon her sin because of the amazing grace just shown to her. Jesus is teaching about the life-transforming power of the gospel. Yes, the gospel demands that salvation be received by faith and repentance, but it also demands that grace received and experienced to a transformed life that's changed forever because of what God has done for us. Amen. Do you live this way? You've been lavished with grace. Christ has absorbed the condemnation in your stead. I do not doubt that this woman ever forgot this day, do you? She lived every day as one who was rescued from the execution squad. She lived every day as one who had been pardoned from a judgment she rightly deserved. The same should be true of us, my friends. How could we live any other way but by being fueled by such a love to live out all our days no longer for self, but for Christ who loved us? Galatians 2.20 Crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith, the Son of God, who loved me decisively at the cross, loved me, and gave his life for me. Great gospel, friends. We have a very sure scripture. Rest in it. Trust the Savior. Live your life in the light of his grace. It is uh, 1015. Questions, comments? Yeah. This is just a, a comment I was thinking as we were talking about the end of John where it says there are many other things mm. that Jesus has done yeah. that it couldn't be contained in this book. Yeah. It could have the world could have contained it, he says. If it could be written books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And right. it just makes me amazed, uh, you know, that when we read even a passage like this that's probably a true story. Yep. How many other things did Christ do that displayed mm. all of these attributes? We know that scripture is sufficient, so we don't need more. That's right. But wow, when we get to heaven, maybe <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> Amen. That would be awesome. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's good. Questions? Comments? All right. Pray. Father, how amazing you are. Without your word, we couldn't know you couldn't know anything. Yet you preserved it for us, not in 
tattered fragments or things copied thousands of years later, but a thing so accurate we can rest confidently, word for word. That's what John wrote. That's what Paul wrote. As they were carried along by your spirit to record your words. Thank you. Help us to treat your word like that. And we wouldn't let it collect dust. We'd tremble before it and love it and eat it. Thank you for Christ. Oh, what a beautiful Savior. If any has not tasted this grace, let them know the heart of Christ, that they would repent of their sin and arrest him live out all their days a transformed life of repentance and, and growth and holiness because what Christ has already done for them forgiven, no condemnation righteous love you Father teach us in the service to come in Jesus precious name Amen